Good morning, everybody, and happy Easter. Um, I am, my name is Julie. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you all this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us for the first time or if you've been coming for a while, we're just so excited to celebrate this Resurrection Sunday together. Um, feel honored that we get a chance to do that uh, all together. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump right in. Heavenly Father, thank you. We come to you in praise this morning that we do get to celebrate your resurrection. That even though on Friday we um, reflected on and, and experienced the darkness that comes with your death, we get to see how you work all things for good, even the hard things in your resurrection. You've given us new life and a new chance uh, through your resurrection. So, Lord, this morning, as we think about that, as we reflect on that, just pray that you would be working in each and every one of us, um, bringing that new life to come to bear in our own lives. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I was thinking about today and thinking about uh, this chance to talk about Jesus and the resurrection I found myself thinking about stories where someone in the story is presumed to be dead, but actually isn't. So there's a ton of examples of this in books and movies. Um, one big one, I feel like, is the, the Marvel movies. They like wiped out half of the universe with a snap of the fingers and then brought everyone back. Uh, if you are a fan of soap operas or any kind of dramas, even the modern-day versions, uh, I'm pretty sure every one of them has at least one character that comes back from the dead at some point. My mom likes to tell me about one uh, where there was a character that died, and for an entire season, that character was dead. And then at the very last episode of that season, you find out the whole thing was a dream, and the character actually was still alive. But my favorite example of this is the Sherlock Holmes stories. So I went on a major Sherlock Holmes kick this summer and this fall. Not sure why it took me so long to take an interest in these stories, because I love a good mystery, and I also love a good story about friendship, and that's pretty much exactly what you get in Sherlock Holmes. But I went on a big binge of it. I read and watched like all of the adaptations that you can think of, uh, and one of the things that every adaptation likes to highlight and talk about is the mythology where Sherlock fakes his own death and then comes back much later, usually much to Watson, his friend's surprise. So if you're not familiar with the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, Watson and Sherlock, they become kind of like the unlikely best friends. They have many adventures, they solve many crimes, and then in the story, Sherlock dies and then Watson's kind of left to start his life over again. Now, all the different adaptations uh, have Watson react differently when Sherlock reappears. So in the original, in, uh, Watson faints when he finds out that Sherlock is still alive. One of my favorites is uh, the 2010 BBC series. I feel like it was popular for a while, so some of you may be familiar with that one. Um, Watson, actually, he's not so, as much surprised or confused as he is just straight up angry. <laughs> he actually tries to attack Sherlock Holmes, which is ironic, because he just finds out he's still alive, and he tries to kill him right after that. But when you look at all these different adaptations, uh, I've, I was thinking about how the Watsons that seem to do the best, the ones who seem to thrive after Sherlock's, you know, fakes his death, are the ones who are in on the secret. 
the ones who know that Sherlock isn't actually dead and he's going to come back someday. And as I think about these stories where characters die and come back to life, and I think about Jesus and the Easter story, I can't help but notice one truth, that what we think is going to happen in the future really impacts how we live our lives in the present. And that's something that matters when we think about the resurrection, because oftentimes when we talk about the resurrection, we talk about it in terms of the future, right? We're going to one day also be resurrected. But it's something that has a lot of bearing on our lives in the here and the now, because it makes a difference if we think of Jesus as someone who just did some great things and then he died and that was the end of it, or whether we think he's actually risen and he's alive and is coming back someday. So it matters that we worship a living God. It changes how we think about God. It changes how we think about ourselves and our lives and the world around us. So just go down this line of thinking with me for a second. If Jesus had stayed dead, the story, if it had just stopped after Jesus' death, we'd have no real plan forward for the future. Our main character would die a heroic death, and that's a good story in and of itself. But what happens next? In the same way that there's no more Sherlock Holmes stories without Sherlock, there's no story of Christianity without Jesus being a living, risen God. And thankfully, in the story of Scripture, we get to see that Jesus' death is not the end of the story. It's really more just like the end of Act 1. And then we get a little three-day intermission, and then we get to start Act 2. And ultimately, we're told in Scripture that one day we know the ending, that Jesus is coming back to make everything new. And while we live in this time after Jesus' death, but before he comes back to make everything new, it really does still matter if we think of God as a living, risen God, or if we think of him as just someone who did great things and, and then died. So this Easter, I want to highlight three reasons why it matters that we worship a living God. So I want to talk about how it gives us a purpose in our lives while we live here in the present, how it gives us power in our daily, day, in our daily lives, and how it gives us a personal relationship with Jesus. So let's start with purpose. Uh, in the church, if you've been in the church for a while, or even if it's your first time, you can probably notice that we put a lot of emphasis on the cross. You can see them in church buildings. We've got a big one up in this building. It's in the stained glass around you. Uh, it's something that gets talked about a lot in churches. And rightly so. Jesus' death is a huge important part of the story of Christianity. But unfortunately, sometimes they think we overemphasize his death to the point where his resurrection feels just sort of like a, an afterthought, right? It's just kind of like a cool party trick that Jesus does to amaze some people. But the truth is we can't separate the cross and the resurrection. They go hand in hand, and the resurrection is an equally important part of the story. And it's important because it's not just a one-time miracle that happened and then, you know, we all kind of moved on but it's actually the beginning of the restoration that Jesus brings into this world and that is currently still uh, going on. 
Uh, I've been reading a book on Easter and on the resurrection uh, by an author named Tim Keller, and he puts it this way. He says, The resurrection was indeed a miraculous display of God's power, but we should not see it as a suspension of the natural order. Rather, it's the beginning of the restoration of the natural order of the world, the world as God intended it to be. So the resurrection isn't something that just interrupts the flow of kind of the way things normally are, and then things go back to how they were. It's something new that's going to keep going on and bring us back to how things were uh, originally intended to be. The resurrection isn't just miraculous because it happened and the dead don't usually rise on their own. That's true, but it's also miraculous because now they do. Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning of the restoration that's happening and is going to continue to happen in our world. Because after Jesus rises, anyone who believes in him can also be made new. And anyone who chooses to follow him can experience reconciliation with God. They can experience peace. And not only are we made new just for our own personal selves, but we're invited to be a part of this new world that God's creating, to share this restoration with the rest of the world. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 20. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So God's restoration doesn't stop with himself, and it's not just the end of the story. He shares that restoration with us and then invites us in to be a part of the story that he's writing. He invites us to share it with the rest of the world through telling other people what Jesus has done, through loving our neighbors as ourselves, through working for justice and peace and mercy in the world. So we're saved from our sin, but we're also saved for something else, a greater purpose. We're now called to be Christ's ambassadors in the world. And that's really what the second act of the story is all about. It's about how Jesus' followers will live out this purpose by representing him and bringing his peace to the rest of the world. And here's why it matters, then, that we believe that Jesus is alive and that he's coming back when we're thinking about how we live out our purpose. You can think of it this way. Let's say God planted a garden, and we're not entirely sure what he's planted. Um, We can see some things coming up, and he asks us to take care of this garden while he's gone. So if you're a gardener, um, I know Zach and I were already talking about gardening because it feels like it's spring, but even though my garden's still covered in snow, eventually we'll get there. I've done this before when we go out of town and ask our neighbors to water our garden or something like that. So imagine that that's what God does. He invites us to um, take care of his garden while he's gone. Now, if we thought God wasn't coming back, we might treat this garden differently. We might slack on the watering or on the weed pulling. I know that's where I always slack every year. Or maybe we would decide that we, we could do it better. So we might dig it all up and try to rearrange it in a way that feels like something that we would do or or that we think is best. 
But if we know he's coming back and we believe that, then we're going to take care of it differently. We'll probably be more diligent about taking care of it. We'd want to do a good job so that we could present it proudly to him when he comes back. And that's how God calls us to live. He calls us to tend to the things that he's planted, like the people who are ready to hear the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. He calls us to bear fruit of peace and joy and patience and love. He calls us to root out the weeds of hatred and pride and injustice. And this ability to make change that we have in this world, it's real, but it's also limited. We'll never have complete control of it. Uh, we don't know exactly what God's planted or what he's doing. And we can't completely get rid of the things that are hard in this world, like the weeds. But we do have an opportunity to take care of it. And knowing that Jesus is coming back one day gives us a purpose and gives us hope that when he comes back, he's going to make all things new. Gives us a reason to keep going, to keep taking care of the garden, uh, while even though it may be hard at times. Because when we worship a living God, one who we know is coming back, we remember that we are living in a story that's much bigger than ourselves. All right, secondly, I want to talk about how worshiping a living God gives us power. So when you think of the arc of a story, uh, for the second half of the story, the second act to work or to make sense, something has to change between act one and act two, right? You need some kind of character growth or some kind of incident that changes things and shakes things up. Otherwise, you're just going to have a repeat of the first half and the second half. And the same is true when you think about the story of God. In order for Act 2 to work, for us to live out this purpose of bringing restoration to the world, something has to change, or it's just going to be a repeat of Act 1 again. And a huge part of that is that we need Jesus to die, like we remembered on Good Friday, so that we can be reconciled to God and have our sin be forgiven. But if that's all that were to change between Act 1 and Act 2, we'd still have a major sin problem to deal with. So if you've been coming to Res City over the last six weeks, like Joel mentioned, we've been talking about sin and kind of looking at it from different angles and how scripture talks about it. And some of the things we've talked about is how it's pervasive. It's everywhere, inside of us, outside of us. And we've talked about how it's corrosive and how it affects everything, including the natural world around us. And that no matter how hard we try, even through our best efforts, we can't seem to, to get rid of the problem of sin on our own. So even if we're forgiven by God, we'll never be able to master the sin in ourselves, and we'll never be able to fix all of the sin in the world that we might see around us. But Jesus' death isn't the only thing that changes between Act 1 and Act 2 of the story. There's also his resurrection, which is what we celebrate today. Because without the resurrection, we're stuck, right? Uh, even Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. But with the resurrection, Jesus carves a path forward for us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead in his resurrection and made him victorious over sin and death is given to us through God's Spirit. So Ephesians 1 talks about this, and I want to read a few of the verses here says, this is Paul praying for the Ephesian church, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So shockingly, Ephesians says that the same incomparably great power that raised Christ from the dead is now available to any of us who believe in him. And I think this should get our attention. The same power that made the resurrection, the miraculous resurrection possible, is available to us when we worship a living God. And I don't know about you, but I do not often feel like I have that kind of power in my life. And it's definitely not something that I think about that often. But we do have that power. That's what Ephesians tells us. The Spirit empowers us to live out our purpose of being restored and spreading God's restoration through the rest of the world. And part of the way that the Spirit does that is that it allows us to live out our purpose by giving us the power to deal with the sin inside ourselves. It's kind of like, you know, what they tell you on an airplane where you have to deal with the sin inside yourself before you can uh, help the sin, do anything about the sin outside of you. You have to put your own mask on, your own oxygen mask on, before you can help put the oxygen mask on anybody else. So I want to start by talking about how this power that we have is available to us to help deal with the sin inside of ourselves, kind of connecting it to, that, to the rest of the sermon series that we've previously done. Because we may know that Jesus' death on the cross forgives us of our sin and makes us right with God, It makes it so we don't have to earn anything, which is a huge gift in and of itself. But the resurrection is what gives us the power to put that uh, freedom that we are given into action. To live as if we really believe that that's true. So we've talked about how sin is sneaky, right? It always wants something more for us. It pulls us in. It lies to us saying, it's not that bad. Everyone else is doing it. It's probably not even that big of a deal. But ultimately, it enslaves us. And then while we're enslaved to it, it leaves us with guilt and shame uh, over the things that we've done, makes us feel like we're failures. Maybe it uh, brings guilt and shame to things that were done to us by other people's sin. We start to believe, oh, that's just who I am, right? This is just who I am in my very being. I can do nothing right, and I'm always going to be haunted by this sin that I've committed. But the resurrection is like a a certificate of freedom. So every time we feel like we're stuck in our sin, like we're enslaved to it, like we can't make change or progress, this is just how it's going to be, every time we feel stuck, the resurrection reminds us that we don't have to. We're free. We can live differently because we have the power of the Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and uh, allows us to then live a different life. So every time we're overcome with guilt or shame about what we've done or what's been done to us, that certificate of freedom reminds us that we can leave all of that behind. Those things have been paid for. Uh, We do no longer have to carry the burden of them around. We no longer have to define ourselves by those things. And I think when the Spirit reminds us of these truths, that we're free and that our sin has been paid for, it really changes us. 
We're no longer enslaved or defined by sin. And that's a powerful thing. When you truly feel those things in your bones, when it truly becomes part of who you are, part of your identity, that you know that you have been set free, that you're forgiven, that you are made new in Jesus, it makes us want to go out and spread that restoration with the rest of the world. It's like the best news we've ever received, and why would we want to keep it to ourselves? So this power that we receive from the Spirit empowers us to go out and to share that restoration with others to work for freedom for other people who are experiencing injustice, or to heal things that are broken. It should overflow out of us and, and help us to, uh, in that analogy, tend the garden that God has entrusted to us. So Jesus' death and his resurrection give us the power we need to live out the purpose that he's given us, both in our personal lives and our own, kind of the way we think about ourselves in the world and in how we go out and share that with the rest of the world. All right, and then the last thing I want to talk about uh, this morning, about why it matters that we worship a living God, is that if he's alive, we actually get to be in relationship with him. We can have a personal, living, active relationship with God. So Jesus' death and resurrection uh, deal with our sin so that we can have that relationship with God be restored. And through that, we're given purpose and power. But again, that's not meant to be just the end of the story. Jesus doesn't come to save us and kind of rise again and then just disappear into the background. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to be in relationship with us. And if we're being honest, I think it can be really easy to fall into treating God just like any author of a book that we read, maybe you find some helpful information from it or from the story, and then you kind of move on. But there's a difference between knowing about God, reading about him, learning about who he is, and actually knowing him, actually being in relationship with him. And I want to read one of the accounts from the Easter story, because today is Easter, and because I think it puts helpful language to this idea. So Luke 24, verses 1 through 8, says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. I love that question at the end. Why do we look for the living among the dead? Because I think so many of us are doing that with God. We're looking for God among the dead. Maybe we treat him like any other dead philosopher or teacher who had some great things to say and we can maybe learn something from him. Or maybe we treat him like someone who saves us and gets us into heaven, but that's kind of the end of it. Or maybe for you, you've had times in your life where you've really felt like you had that living, personal relationship with God, but now life has gotten busy, things have changed, and it's just it's hard to feel that connection or hard to feel like you still have that personal relationship. But God is not some dead professor. He's not just someone who comes in to save us and then leave. He's a living, risen God. So we need to stop looking for him among the things that are dead. 
We need to stop limiting his actions to the past and look for him in the present. And I know that this can sound like a really abstract concept, but it can actually be very practical. Uh, During the Great Awakening, which was a revival that happened in Britain and in the American colonies back in the 1730s and 1740s, so a long time ago, there were a series of questions that some of the leaders of the revival would ask people each week to try and help them continue to grow in their spiritual lives. And the interesting thing, interesting thing to me about this is that almost everyone in, like this in, in Britain at least at the time, were, those people were churchgoers already. So they weren't asking these people, like, you know, are you converted? Have you been saved? But they were asking these questions about, are you spiritually alive? So I feel like these questions that they ask are are really helpful. They've been really convicting to me as I've been thinking about them over the past few weeks. And so I want to share some of them. They've been modernized a little bit um, through the book I mentioned earlier by Tim Keller and then kind of added some and changed language a little bit for myself as well. So I'm going to read through these. I know it's a lot of text on the screen. I apologize for that. But uh, I'm just going to kind of walk through these questions. I want you to think about them and allow the spirit to kind of prompt you if any of them really stick out to you. How often do you think about God's presence in your everyday life? I know this one's hard, right? We've got a lot of things we have to do in our daily lives, and so quickly we can kind of move God out of that picture, but how often are you thinking about his presence in your everyday life? When you pray, do you sense God's presence? Do you sometimes find your burdens easing or certain truths about God coming to mind? Are you just checking a box when you're praying, or is there actually connection with a personal uh, relationship with God? Have you been finding scripture to be alive and active in your life? Again, it's not just a book that was written forever ago and doesn't really have any bearing on our lives today. It's, It's God's word. He speaks to us through that even now. Are you finding that God is challenging you or calling you to live differently? This is a big one for me, because if we're not being challenged, then I don't think we're really in a personal relationship with God. I don't think we're actually treating him as a living God if he's not sometimes challenging us as we're walking with him. Have you been freed to see and admit more of the ways your sin, that you sin against God and against others? I think this is big after the sermon series we just went through. Do you feel like you can acknowledge those things and that you are taking the time to actually reflect and see the ways that your sin is impacting other people and uh, your relationship with God? And then as you have an increasing sense of your sin, is God's grace also becoming bigger and more comforting to you? Because if not, that's not, that's not helpful either. I don't want you to, to be aware of your sin, but then to just feel, uh, to feel bad about it. God's grace is there to, to provide that uh, that freedom. How clear and vivid is God's fatherly love in your life? This one's, I think, very telling about how how much we view God as an active, living father in our lives. And lastly, are you finding delight in God and in his word? Following Jesus is never meant to be something that's just really boring and really hard. (laughs) It's actually something we're supposed to experience delight in as we do it. So I want to give you some time to think about it, and I thought I'd share just for me what I've found to be really convicting uh, as I've thought through these questions. Something I noticed lately is that oftentimes when I'm praying, 
I feel really comfortable praying for like the big picture stuff, uh, you know, for God's will to be done, for earth to be like it is in heaven. Uh, and I feel really comfortable praying for other people's requests and things that other people um, are asking God to do in their lives. But I've noticed I've been struggling to pray more specific prayer requests for my own life. I've been struggling to ask God to do uh, specific things in my life because I think, well, what if I'm wrong and that's not what is the best thing that I should be praying for? Or what if my prayer goes unanswered and I end up feeling really disappointed by it? Or what if I'm just bothering God with these specific requests that really ultimately don't matter in the big picture? But I've noticed that what I'm functionally doing is acting as if God's alive and active in everybody else's life, but not in my own. And that's a problem, uh, but I think the bigger problem is that I'm unintentionally cutting God out of certain areas of my life. And if I think about it, I can probably think of, you know, this comes from times where I've felt like prayers have gone unanswered or haven't been answered the way I thought that I wanted them to be. I also know it can just sometimes be scary and vulnerable to ask God into those specific desires and hopes that we have. So I was telling a friend about this a few weeks ago, um, and we kind of decided that I was going to pray really specifically for something for the next few weeks. Uh, and she said, graciously said she was going to join me in that, which I know we talk a lot about community here at Resurrection City, and having another person join you in, in you know, kind of trying to take those steps to view God as an active living God can be so helpful just to have another person who's kind of helping you along in that process. And you know what happened? The prayer was not answered the way that I thought it was going to be. But do you know what else happened? I actually felt God's presence in an increased way. The disappointment that I feared, it wasn't crushing. If anything, I actually even maybe feel more hopeful about what I'm praying about, which is counterintuitive, I know, but I think to me that shows God's power and his presence in my life. My hopes, my fears, you know, all of those things, giving them to God and inviting him into that, it makes his faithfulness and his love even more clear in my mind. Instead of feeling disappointed, I'm actually even more encouraged by what God is doing in the world and in other people's lives around me. So I just share that because I think when we treat God like the living, uh, risen God that he is, we only get to experience his love even more. And even whatever it is that might be holding us back from doing that, whether it's fear or busyness or anything else, uh, I just want to encourage you to, to kind of think about what would it look like to push through those things? What would it look like to take a step uh, towards one of these questions in how you treat God as a living, active God? Because I think we just get to experience more of that resurrection power when we do, and we get to be really clear on what God's calling us to do, what our purpose is when we do that. So I'm going to leave these questions up here for a little bit longer. I want you to think about it. Is there a way that you have been looking for the living among the dead? Is there a way that you have been treating God as if he's not actually active and alive and working in your everyday life? How can you enjoy that personal relationship that we get to have with Jesus because he is a resurrected God? We're going to head into our time uh, of worship today. We're actually not going to be taking communion. If you are um, a regular attender, you know that we take communion every week as a way to remind us of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And since we got a chance to really focus on his death on Friday and to take communion together then on Good Friday, we won't be doing it today. Just another chance to remember that as much as we celebrate that Jesus died, we also get to celebrate that he rose again. And we get to praise God for that and to celebrate that together this morning. So we're going to um, continue on into our time of reflection and response through worship through song. And also, if you'd like to receive prayer from anyone, we'll have someone standing in the back um, who'll be willing to pray for you. So as you do that, as we transition into this time, I encourage you to, to think about these questions and think about how you can maybe take a step this week to treat God like a living, active uh, relationship in your life. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will head into that time of worship and response. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a living God and that you want to be in a personal, active relationship with us. Even though we fall short, even though we uh, continually turn away from you, you continue to seek us, and you show us that so clearly through your death and your resurrection. So Lord, thank you. We praise you. We celebrate together this morning that you are not among the dead. You're among the living. You're seated in your heavenly throne, and that one day you're coming back to make everything right here on earth. So, Lord, would you help us to remember that truth? Would you help it to make a difference in how we live in our present, present lives, that we know that you're coming back and that you're alive? In your name we pray. Amen.